0: Which is really good. We're going to have some living room moments in this place today. All right, yeah, we're going to get our living room on. But um, I'm a little bit woolly and you know sniffling and stuff like that. But a blooming cold's not going to stop me from bringing the word of the Lord today. Okay, so here we go. So the last couple of weeks, if you haven't been with us, we've been looking at the Book of Esther, and you know it's an it's an epic story. It's a narrative that's last lasted through the ages, and um, is that incredible story where God providentially uses two exiles, um, Mordecai and Esther. And there's no explicit mention of God in the book, which is really amazing. And although we do see that there is a bit of compromise and a bit of disobedience, because they were supposed to be Jews who followed the Lord with all of their heart, soul and mind and loved their neighbours as themselves. But um, there were bits there where You know, uh, it just didn't happen. I'm actually wondering why is it such a beloved Sunday school-less story because there's bits in it that are just not suitable for kids, hey? (laughs) So not everyone loves Esther. Did you know that? Martin Luther, he said, he wrote this. He said, I am so hostile to this book that I wish it did not exist for it Judaizes too much and has too much heathen naughtiness. (laughs) So... The good bit is that Josh and Chris uh, were quite happy to talk about the naughty bits, and I don't have to today. (laughs) So that's really good. We're looking at chapters three to five today. So Chris, lovely Chris, parked us at the end of chapter two, and um, there we have beautiful young Esther. She'd won the beauty contest, and she's been given a crown and made the queen of Persia, and that's where we left the story last week and she's no more headline news, you know, four years had passed and we didn't even hear about her, no one heard about her, she was in that palace I can't imagine what it would be like to be in the palace um, she would have to have her whole life support, everything was in the palace uh, not that romantic if you ask me, pretty awful and um, no freedom, huh and, um, but you know, the action strikes up again And there we go, and um, we're going to dig in a bit deeper today, and there's a fascinating plot using this very, very psychologically interesting um, Haman. (laughs) So these chapters show us that um, the very source of intense irritation and trauma become the means through which we become identified with God and his mission through our obedience. We're going to revisit that, that phrase again at the end. I think I'll say it again. We're going to find out that the means of irritation and trauma can can become the means through which we're identified with God and his mission through our obedience. So this morning we'll see how this very, very clever and skillful author has consciously crafted this book and used these narrative devices to um, just increase the suspense. Ha-ha! And to take us to the point, to the turning point of the story. Okay? And then um, the wonderful joy will take us on next week. Next week? Yep. Cool. Great. But we're going to drop it just at the fall of Haman today. So to try and get a grip on the take-home messages, I've been reading the rabbis to see what they had to say because, you know what, it's a Jewish book. So it always pays to go back to the source, hey? the, the people who really know what they're talking about. And, um, you know, Purim is so important to the cultural di- identity of the Jewish people still today. And, um, you know, it was only two and a half months ago that the Jewish global community, uh, honoured Purim as part of their um, uh, tradition. 21st century, it still goes on. Isn't that amazing? So, of course, it's the centrepiece holiday of the book of um, Esther. And it's, you know, it's that tale of that ancient king and that evil, evil man, Haman. And the plot to kill the Jews and take over the kingdom, but um, at the last minute, that Queen Esther she rises at such a at, at such a time as this, and um, through her act, the Jews are saved. So Purim is still such a vital, vital part in their corporate mentality. So. Even Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, um, he brought up the biblical story in his um, contentious speech to Congress in 2016 where he was trying to urge the US lawmakers to, dist- um, to reject a deal with Iran over, the, over its nuclear program. And so in his speech, the day before Purim, the Jewish, Jewish holiday, Netanyahu evoked the book of Esther. Hmm. He said, We'll read of the powerful Persian viceroy named Haman who plotted to destroy the Jewish people some 2,500 years ago, Netanyahu said. Today the Jewish people face another attempt at yet another Persian potentate to destroy us, Netanyahu said, calling Iran's supreme leader a modern-day Haman. Ooh. That didn't go down too well, I'm sure. Um, That's a big, bold statement uh, loaded with ancient sensitivities. And commenting on her Prime Minister's claim, (laughs) Dr. Ilham Gindan, an Israeli expert on Iran, said, Haman's not even Persian. He was not Iranian. He was an Amalekite, that is, a Semite. Perhaps she's splitting hairs, but Haman was a Prime Minister of ancient Iran. But of course his ethnicity was not Persian. So here's the scripture and we're gonna sense oops, I get to do this, don't I? Do I go like that? Uh-oh. Is it on? Yeah. Uh uh-uh. uh. there it is. Yeah, there it is. Um Okay, so that growing tension, and as the conflict's introduced through a new character, the wealthy, swish, ambitious Haman, who's portrayed empathetically as an evil villain. I'm going to ask my son-in-law Chris to read this. At the living room, we always read it out loud together, so we're going to do it here too.
1: After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman's son of Hamadatha, the Agite... Elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey? Day after day they spoke to him that he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down nor pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, Throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes.
0: Thank you. So um, you see, Xerxes, the NIV uses his Greek name. That's King. I can hardly say it. Ah, Ahasuerus. You did a good job last week, Chris. You know, but we all know who we're talking about, okay? Okay, Bob. Okay. So instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom. In other words, he restrained himself for a moment. He came up with a strategic plan and gave himself some time. And to follow through, he wanted to maximise his opportunity, yeah? And subsequently, he came up with a funded proposal, which he sold to Ahasuerus. Did I say it? Cool. <laughs> yeah, him. Okay, so there's some conflict. There's two characters are producing some action here, right? And they're the ones that we need to watch because it's through this very action that they become known to us and the situation is becoming known. So Haman's not satisfied that as prime minister, millions, millions of Jews um, bow down to him. As long as M- is refusing, um, that's just more than he can take. You know, this insubordination is absolutely intolerable. Can't take it. And so it sounds like maybe he was originally in the king's ear, you know, with, a, with Vashti, you know, when she was insubordinate. Was he there then? Because it really, really sounds like it to me. This guy's got an issue. And um, I reckon he was on the same committee. They got rid of Vashti. And he, yep. And so this insecurity, this need for absolute control just consumed him. And it was insufferable to have someone like Mordecai not follow through. Shocking. So now these six verses that we just read, they've just stirred up a hornet's nest of stuff because there's so much thing, so many things we need to understand already. Um, and we're going to follow through a few things, these three points, um, through our chat here. So first of all, there's some really, really rotten fruit going on. There's a generational root, in fact, and we... It's something that we need to talk about before we can go any further with this story. So there's so much more to two blokes having a stroppy thing happening. It's much much more than two men who are prideful. Um, There's a bitter root dispute. Say that bitter root dispute again. Bitter root dispute. And where you see bitter roots, you know that um, you know where there's bitter fruit, you know that there's a root somewhere. And, um, and so there's this mutual dishonouring and it energises Haman and, in, and his absolute resolution to exterminate the Jews. Not just Mordecai, I'm going to take the whole lot of them out. Secondly, comes the universal fact that ideas have consequences. As Canadian Jordan Peterson observes, you don't have ideas. Ideas have you. Yeah? Isn't that interesting? I think you could could do a whole amazing week just studying that. Verse 5 highlights that Haman was filled with rage. So Haman's actions perfectly model this concept, right? And then the next thing that we're looking at today is identity. I am who you say that I am. Good choice, eh? (laughs) That's amazing. Um, Really good. Finally, we'll touch on another... Yet yeah, that, that overarching theme of identity. God is faithful to his promise to preserve his own even when we forget who we are. Sometimes we've got no idea who we are in certain situations. But when you know who you are, everything makes a difference. You're a child of God. You've been, you're here for a purpose and a reason. So let's look at the slides here. So where there's a fruit, there's a root. There's a historical generational matter going down here. And um, it's, there's much, much more than meets the eye. Long ago in First Samuel, um, King Saul, who by ironic coincidence, this is one of those Esther things, um, he happens to be another Kishite like Mordecai and from the tribe of Benjamin. Isn't that interesting? And then he's given a very specific command from the prophet Samuel. And you know what it is. It's its 1st Samuel 15 verse 3. Now go up and strike Amal- Amal- Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. And put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. God's reason was back in... Verse 2, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Well, did King Saul obey Samuel? Did he? No, you remember he didn't. Well, he captured Agag alive and slaughtered all the people, but they kept the king of the Amalekites, big mistake, and the best of the livestock and failed to completely follow through. On the instruction that they were given. You've got to follow through on instructions when you get them. There's a reason. They destroyed the worthless things, but made executive decisions about what to keep. And Samuel told him he'd failed his mission and disobeyed the voice of the Lord. By rushing upon the spoil, he really, truly displeased the Lord. So how did God respond? Well, Through Samuel, God responded, I regret that I ever made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. So we've got a deep-seated, ancient problem here. Things come back to bite you if you don't follow through and obey the Lord. And here we've got a whole generation at risk because of some great-great-great-great-great-great grandfather's disobedience. And it's fascinating, isn't it? If you look at the personality of Haman himself, he's got some very extraordinary behaviours going on, hasn't he? He's, he's got all sorts of aggressive reactions and, and self-rejection and defence mechanisms at work. Where there is rotten fruit there's a root. What's the root in this man? What happened to him when he was a kid that made him like this? How has he become so extraordinarily twisted and ambitious and selfish and self aggrandizing that he is the person who he is today? Sometimes we have to work with those people, don't we? Yeah, I know Paul did, didn't you? Yeah, and um, you know, there are root causes for the people that we mix with. And that's why, as God's people, we need to be able to speak into those situations. There's a reason. It doesn't always work in the negative, of course, because there's positive fruit in our life. And where there is positive, wonderful fruit, of course, there's good roots there, isn't there? We've allowed the Lord to work into us, and he's healed those places that have been wounded. He's healed um, the rejection. He's healed the... um, the uh, defiance and rebellion that we that once I'd, we were identified by and um, and this is what our life as disciples of Jesus is about as we, as we work with him as he works with us and he changes us from glory to glory and we get stronger and stronger and we become more and more like his glorious image it's, that's exciting Ben there's my tissues whoops okay so secondly comes at idea... Whoops, we're on to the next slide, I think. Ideas have consequences. People don't have ideas. Ideas have people. Um, yeah, so he's... Uh, oops, I'm over the page here. Yep. So Hayman's passionate pursuit of his big ideas help us to know how to, governate, how to navigate our own culture and to think critically about what we're seeing happening, right? And... Um, and and for our own self um, evaluation too, we need to really check what goes on up here. Uh, not all ideas are God ideas, are they? So historically, we know now where this idea to exterminate the Jews has come from. Um, he was trying to deal with a problematic, untenable enemy while making a bit of profit, and so it's a win-win situation for him. He's going to get enormous gain and satisfaction, personal satisfaction from this project, and increase his portfolio while making himself absolutely indispensable to the king. What a slimy, creepy, crawly thing he is. He was overcome with his idea, and it was driving him, it was fueling him. So when we, where we see this sort of stuff happening, there are ideas in people that need to... Um, be addressed. Even for ourselves, we need to have a checkup from the neck up. Mm -hmm. I used to work in a school and the the boss man was a prophet, so we'd always be getting things like this. (laughs) So my ideas, your ideas, our ideas have consequences. So what kind of behaviour is coming from my ideas? And where will my ideas take me? Is it a place I really want to go to? So What sort of ideas is Cornerstone entertaining at the moment? Table of Eight's a great idea. In fact, 35 years ago in Christchurch, I used to organise something which is pretty much identical to Table of Eight. It was called Hospitality Circle, except we made our own um, group. It wasn't coordinated as such. And it was really, really successful. I've got a wild idea. We've got a wild, wonderful... Dream and vision that Clem and I have been holding on to for 19 years now. That is breakthrough on the north side of Brisbane to see Jesus taking His place and and being in His full lordship on the north side of Brisbane. Do you have that dream too? We've um, we used for the 10 years that we had Solid Rock Church. We would. um, with a group. We'd go up to Eldon Hill, which is a fantastic vantage point. Panorama, 360 degrees. Twice a week, we would pray over those houses. We would pray for salvation to come. Salvation to come. Salvation and healing and restoration with God. And um, we were consistent on that until we came back into um, Cornerstone back in 2010. And um, You know, becoming a chaplain was part of that uh, strategy. Uh Aha, ideas have consequences. And um, so I got myself planted at Kedron State School 10 years ago and... All I can say is, like Esther, I've got favour there. It's extraordinary. Sometimes I feel like Snow White walking through the school and all the little forest animals come around me. It's really, it's really, really sweet. It takes time. Especially they're really happy when I give them a, a school breakfast. Margaret and I and Clem and our other Margaret friend, we were all there on um, Wednesday morning and, and did a brekkie for 450 kids. That was really fun. And they appreciate that. It really connects the community. It's wonderful, and um, and uh, yeah. So we have some fun. They really love Subway um, lunches too. <laughs> That's when I'm more like a rock star. Oh, Chappy, thank you. Yeah. Did you know that we've got another Chappy in our midst? Kane. Yeah. Give him a big clap. Kane has just um, taken up. Um, his chaplaincy at, at the Gap State High School, and the guys have been very heavily invested in that school community. You need to talk, okay? I like networking people. You guys talk, because um, no, it's all right. Yeah, and so um, it's very, very important. Oh, look, it's quad to 11. Okay, so. Yeah, we really, really want to see breakthrough on the north side of Brisbane. It's not just a desire, it's a conviction. We must, because if we do not, what will happen to this generation? What will happen if we do not see massive salvation in families? Because they're going down the Googler. They really, truly are. I can't fathom, I cannot tell you how much trauma we encounter in children in school these days. Anyone in education will tell you that. And um, I'm just so privileged to have Jenny alongside me on Tuesday afternoon. She's been doing seasons of growth with me. Um, and we've been, um, it, it's, it's for children who've, been su- who've suffered grief and loss. And what we didn't realise is that we had three children who have suffered terrible trauma. And so this course has just been way too much for them. <laughs> so I've had to make modifications with that one. So it's, um, but there she is, Jenny. She's being submersive. Yay. Fantastic. It's good fun, huh? Yeah. So identity. This is another huge theme in the book. So this zones in on identity. Mordecai's ethno-religious identity and background up till this point has been irrelevant. Not even talked about. No. But it stimulates some more questions for us as, as Christians, doesn't it? I'm not even going to read those. You can read them while I'm chatting here. But um, he reached a threshold. He reached a point of no return when he needed to... It was absolutely inexcusable for him to be um, concealing his identity, his Jewish identity, any longer. Well, people knew he was a Jew, but there he was. He, he, He came right out and made mention of that. He refused to bow down to Haman... Because Haman was either wearing something on his clothes that had something to do with some foreign god or else he himself had exalted himself to that place of God status. And so there's no way that that, um, Mordecai was going to bow to that sort of form of compulsory honouring. So we need to know when, we need to stand our ground and at what cost. Will we do that? So it, conviction is what we learn from Mordecai. You know, sometimes it's okay. You can have chocolate or you can have vanilla. You don't really need a conviction on some things. Lots of things in life, we don't need it. and um, But some things really matter. And, um, and so this crisis actually exposed in Mordecai a deep internal belief. And... Um, It was already there in pre-existing. Oh, Fui, you can't really see that very well, can you? In the middle, the word is conviction. Um, He had a predetermined personal belief. It was unshakable. No one could touch it. He would never, ever, ever idolise a man because as a Jew, he loved the Lord, his God, with all of his heart, soul, and all of his mind. He honoured him. He knew the command of the Lord. He would never exalt a man above what he should have been. So bowing down was absolutely non-negotiable. These are the elements of what conviction is made of. Um, he w- it, you know, that was not contingent either on victory. You know, there was no guarantee that he was going to get out of this alive. But you're not going to make me bow down. No way. But, um, Conviction doesn't buckle under peer pressure. He had the boys at the gate poking him all, all the time. Hey, why aren't you doing that? You're disobeying the king. So, but winning for Mordecai was not surrendering. So Mordecai consistently demonstrated his conviction with his life and his lips. And so they are congruent. They matched up. So what really, really matters to us? I don't know. What matters to you? That's something that more and more as time goes on, all of us need to be looking inwardly what other core beliefs that we hold, what is absolutely essential and vital because we're going to need conviction in the days to come. You know, one in nine Christians in 2019 experienced high levels of um, persecution. These, we've got brand new stats out from Brother Andrew. And, um, you know, so that means 11 family members in the Christian world today, will die and go to heaven. They'll become part of that huge number who are crying out to God for, um, for vengeance. And so uh, about 1,266 churches and Christian buildings were reportedly attacked in the last 12 months in the world. Business isn't, isn't as usual as it? it's really changing. Even though the family got God increased by 30 million people last year. Isn't that incredible? God's at work and doing something. So, you know, there's all sorts of trends that are um, happening at the moment in terms of of um, this oppression of faith in the world. And, um, and certainly control, religious control is certainly number five in the trends. And we're starting to feel it, just starting to feel it in Australia. So at this point, We need conviction. We certainly do. ScoMo's not Superman. We need to understand our place and our role in this season of grace that the church has. Because we need to rise in prayer in this season. There's no way we can get, we can't move further into the future with the level of prayer and worship that we're operating at the moment. That's my conviction. We need to go deeper and deeper and deeper. We need more. And um, not just volume, we need authority prayer to be speaking because the government's got their job, we've got ours. And it's absolutely a, a level of greater accountability and duty and a holy charge to take action for our nation in this next season. We agree, don't we? We do. We've got to find a way. Ideas of consequences. If we let this one drop, well, we're, we're dropping the ball. Really, do. So, meanwhile, Heyman's at the drawing board, and he's full of conviction, and he's putting his money where his mouth is, and um, he's working out something there. So, yep, you know, he was pretty superstitious and into sorcery, that old that bloke. I, I kind of see him not so much as an older man, but I see him as a really swish businessman. So, um, in a suit. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So, I think it's really interesting that part of the lies and deception that he used, what, the way he pitched it to the king, because, like, how does a king just do this unless he's sort of got someone in his ear? Um, he was talking about the certain nation that was scattered around the habitable lands which were unfriendly and unsociable. This is how it came into being, this plan. And so, um, you know, they don't marry our women. They don't let us marry them. They don't eat our food. They don't obey your laws. Look, they shirk responsibility because on this, they've got this thing called the Sabbath day and they, they don't do anything that day. They, they've got to go and do their worship. And so there was all sorts of things in his ear. Um... And coupled with Heyman's Get Quick, Get Rich Quick scheme, it was a really, really good idea. That's why it was so appealing and so easily um, uh, absorbed by the king at that time. Francis Schaeffer once said, people are what they think. Choices we make mould irrevocably the direction of our culture and the lives of our children. We need to do chapter four, and it's going to be living room style. Thank you, Esther, Mordecai, and then Hot Touch. This is Esther's main man, main Okay, over there to the palace, please. No, you're really strong. If we didn't have him, we wouldn't have had the outcome that we had. Okay, there's poor Mordecai. He is absolutely beside himself. He's learned what's happened. He's learned about the plan, and he's ripped his clothes. And he's got he's got <laughs> he's got sackcloth and ashes on. And and um, Esther's heard about this, so she sends over some clothes. Anyhow, no, you don't need to. She's already done that. But word got round that everyone was crying, wailing, weeping, fasting, and the magnitude of the situation adorned. So the maids and the eunuchs tell Esther, yeah. Um, Remember, she's in isolation. She hasn't even heard this stuff. She had to be told from someone who goes inside and outside. You know, isn't that incredible? Um, she was stunned. Yeah. So she, she sends um, Hotouch on a mission to find out what and why what's going on. <laughs> Here we go. Get the full story now. Okay, Mordecai to Hotouch said what's happening, the exact amount of money that Haman had promised and deposited in the royal bank to finance the massacre of the Jews. Here's a copy of the royal bulletin. Um, It's got all of the details of the genocide order. Show Esther and explain it to her. This is the law. You need to command her to go to the king and plead, plead for their lives, plead for the lives of the Jews. Okay, so he returns he said everything. Come come on, you got to, Esther's gonna send you back. <laughs> now, here's a command for Mordecai. Everybody, everywhere knows that if any man or woman works here, they know that the single fate, if you approach the king without being invited, is death. <laughs> you know there's just one exception if the king holds out the golden scepter then a person will live. Mordecai I haven't been called for 30 days where do you think this puts me not so favoured don't you think <laughs> okay hot touch back to Esther <laughs> Mordecai t- said Tell that girl, don't you think that just because you live in the king's house, you're one Jew who'll get out of this alive? If you persist staying silent at a time like this, help and deliverance will arrive from the Jews someplace else. You and um, your family will be wiped out. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe you were made a queen for such a time as this. Esther to Hattouch. touch go and tell Mordecai this. Go and get all the Jews living in Susa together. Fast for me. Don't eat or drink anything for three days, either day or night. I and my maids will fast with you. And if you do this, I'll go to the king. And even though it's forbidden, if I die, I die. And Mordecai carried out Esther's instructions. That's it. End of chapter four. (laughs) Thank you. Great team. (laughs) Timing is everything. Boy, oh boy. Sometimes when you're in a dark place, you think you've been buried, but actually you've been planted. Isn't that an awesome quote for a woman like Esther? I can't fathom how horrible her life was, actually. Even though she had, oh, it's a beautiful perfume. Got her hair done all the time. Pretty, pretty clothes, jewels. That's nothing compared to freedom, is it? You wouldn't want that. And then, um, ugh, yucky. Just, I'm not going to talk about that because we talked about that last week. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's an awesome quote. A living woman underneath a dead tree. Uh, tree. She's the root, isn't she? A living root at precisely the right time. Esther entered the right place. There's enormous evidence that the desperate heartfelt prayers of God's people made a way forward. Yeah, that's what it was. The prayer and the fasting. Afraid, yes. And there was no prophetic vision. There was no um, biblical claim to guarantee that she'd get out of this alive. So... But her life was potentially lost anyhow if she didn't go. And I think more than being brave and sucking it up and going to the king, it was more a conviction of forced solidarity. It was a rising into identity as a Jewish woman that caused her to go. And it was about a choice that she made. And she maximised her political connectedness. Now we've got to maximise where we're planted. Because we've been planted in those places for such a time as this. It's very, very important. Cornerstone's been planted in this community for such a time as this. So through Mordecai's call to action, she realised that she was not in the palace for herself, but she was there to intercede for others. So she's no longer a girl making compromises. She was a woman who gave orders. Because we know that she then told everyone what to do. I want a banquet here tonight. I want you. I want Haman here. And then she made them wait even another night longer and had a second banquet. And then we see the eventual downward fall of Haman. Ha, ha, ha. So good. But, you know, Tim Keller notes that this is the language of identification, mission, and obedience. Identification, identifying with the need, identifying with our God. We've got a mission, but it's going to take a whole heap of obedience. Can we please have that next um, slide? That's the end of my slide, I think. I just want to talk about a girl called Lauren. She's 27, so she's she might be your little sister, she might be your big sister. But she's got an incredible... She, incredible opportunity. She's got a a voice like, a really gutsy, fantastic voice like Amy Winehouse and she sings songs from the soul and Ellen had her on her show. Ellen had her on her show. A church girl, Lauren Daigle. We sing her stuff in church. Isn't that awesome? For such a time as this, that little church girl is on international television singing the praises of Jesus and making, making ripples. She's giving people just something to think about because of what she's got inside of her, because of her testimony. Um, it wasn't this song. It was the one about the stone that still rolls. It's really good. And um, anyhow, can we pray this? Can we do that now? We're going to pray, come alive. We have children... You and I have children who are not where they need to be in God. They've got a calling on their lives because we dedicated them as babies. Yeah. So we know what we're talking about. There are family members who are way, way, way from God. There are work colleagues that are just simply a million miles, it would seem, from God. Or are they? We don't know. And so we're going to pray this. Okay, come alive. There's a role for the church in this chapter of history to speak to dry bones to come alive. We have the authority, we have the anointing to call forth the dry bones to come alive. So can we play that now? Thanks, um, Calvin. Ellen, here we go. Pray it, pray it.
2: Song isn't it? I'm sure, like you, I was naming and seeing faces and things. But then, about halfway through, I th- actually was starting to call out to the, some of my dry bones too. It's a song we can sing for ourselves as well. Thank you, Leanne. Wasn't that magnificent? Thank. You. Let's just appreciate it, Leanne. We'll get the the team to come up. We'll get the worship team to come up. I um as we, we're gonna we're gonna close. I really invite you. Um, We're going to pray in a moment, close. I hope you can hang around for some um, fellowship afterwards, tea, coffee, something to eat, (coughs) have a chat. Um, But I know um, our elders, and I'm sure Leanne, Clem would make themselves available, and our elders as well. If there's people, if you feel in that song just then there was a particular sort of something rising up, a burden of prayer, then we'd love nothing more than to stand with you and pray if you feel like maybe that was enough in that moment to to wrap that up but if you feel there's more business with God about anything we'd love to stand alongside you and pray but maybe something in particular I felt like you talked about Esther is about we're going to in story she prepared a feast I feel like you prepared a feast for us there there were so many good things in there I know I'm gonna one of those ones I'm gonna go back and listen but I feel like Leanne you captured the heart so well in the middle there um you, you had three things that it's, it's been the recurring theme, this exile, of this exile issue, and the way you put, it, I thought, was so great. These questions to ask ourselves: What do we compromise? When, when do we compromise our Christian lifestyle to participate in the wider culture? Such good words. Lifestyle is all about comfort, right? It's not a bad thing, but lifestyle. There is a Christian lifestyle that makes us feel comfortable. We're comfortable. It's not a bad thing when we're around people who are very like-minded. We know how to navigate through that. When do we compromise that feeling comfortable for something more important for our engagement in the world? Where do you, where are you prepared to feel uncomfortable by what's said or what's done around you because it isn't part of your Christian lifestyle? Great question. Equally, when do we stand firm? When do we realise we need to stand firm? And then the question, and, I, and I'm not sure if it, if it, I think this question is at both. At what cost? We often focus on the cost of compromise, of when we should stand firm. We know that there's a cost. There is a cost when we don't compromise our lifestyle for the sake of being a part. But there is a cost of being salt and lime. I thought magnificent. Those questions, I think, are at the very heart. We see Esther answer those questions. We see Daniel address those questions. We're going to see Jonah address those questions. That is the challenge of the exile. And I thought so well uh, summarized with all those other wonderful things there. So fantastic. Next week, Joy's going to come and do in that way that only joy can bring it all together. And I'm sure she's going to bring... She's going to take this great foundation that uh, Chris and Leanne have laid and just really bring it home. So, um, I'm going to pray. You're welcome to stay. The, the band of worship for a while, you're welcome to stay in worship, obviously. Love to. we could pray with you. But otherwise, please join us next door for tea or coffee. Um, and then next week's going to be a fantastic week. Baptisms, joy preaching. You wouldn't want to be anywhere else, would you? Really? Honestly? Let's pray. Lord God... We are going out into a world now um, that often feels like we're in exile. Um, we're going into places where we often feel really uncomfortable because the, what we are surrounded with, the values, the behaviour, the thoughts, this a great idea From that all ideas have consequences. We're surrounded by ideas, behaviours, things that are not of you. Lord we we want to step up to the challenge when do we have to compromise just being comfortable for the sake of being your people in the world when do we stand firm help us clear on the cost of doing that Lord God thank you that as we walk this way the way of the wisdom warrior that we see in the exiles that we don't do it alone that it's precisely for this the Holy Spirit was given that we don't go alone we don't go alone because we're also we're part of community. And oh Lord God, again, I just thank you for the privilege of walking with brothers and sisters. We don't do this alone. And so I just pray blessing on every household, every life, as we walk into the uh, week to be your representative. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, "Amen." Fantastic. Love to pray with you.